0: Turn to 126 in your headphones. I'm glad that you are all here. As promised, this morning we are going to start the book of 1 Peter. We will get there eventually. I'm the fortunate recipient of the email that comes in from listeners literally all over the planet, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I try not to think about it because it's way too much pressure but let me share an email with you that I got a couple weeks ago. I've been carrying it in the back of my Bible and reading it once in a while for encouragement. But since they mention all of you, I figure I ought to pass along the greeting to all of you. It says, hi, Jim. My wife and I have been listening to your teaching for over a year now. I don't even remember how I found you on YouTube. But I do know that God brought me there. We discovered God's free and sovereign grace about five years ago and have been seeking out more understanding of his awesome purpose and plan of redemption ever since. How many of you know the Worldwide Church of God? Herbert W. Armstrong, are you familiar with him? We came out of Herbert Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God in the late 90s after spending almost 30 years under the legalistic bondage of that man and his teaching. When God called us and revealed to us His Son, Jesus Christ, and the completed work on the cross, we could not be thankful enough. What a burden was lifted from us. What a sense of joy and peace, of comfort, and an overwhelming urge to praise God. Christ did it all, free from the law, O happy condition. We had never heard that song until we heard your congregation sing it while listening to one of your studies and how it lifted us to hear it and join in. So far, we have been through your series on systematic theology, Hebrews, and Galatians. Currently, we're in the series on the book of Acts. We can't seem to get enough of all that sheep food. (laughs) We are now searching for a healthy church to fellowship with. Please, if you know a church like GCA in the area of, well, it's Virginia, I'm not going to identify the exact area here, let us know. Sadly, I wish that there were more churches like GCA. Personally, I wish there was a man preaching grace on every street corner in America, and folks write to me all the time and say, where can I find a church just like yours? And I say, there are no churches just like ours, because our church has Jeff. I can't find words to express how much we have been blessed in our understanding of God's word by the work of GCA we are being fed by your teaching and we think of you as our pastor my wife and I are making plans to visit GCA in the near future is that an option Shauna? yes okay good we look forward to meeting all the people whose voices we hear and listen to during your studies Tom and Alex, and Gladys, who's not here, and Christian, how did you get a call out? How did that happen? And Renee, and all the other voices that we've heard mentioned, we long to put faces to the voices that say goodbye to us internet folks, and tell us, see you next time. May our Heavenly Father and Lord Jesus Bless each and every one of you. We know that Christ is with you all in all that you are doing. Many thanks. Keep being the Christian with much love in Christ, and they give us their name. Isn't that nice? You wonder why we do what we do? It's exactly because of email like that, that there are people out there being set free by the call of God's free and sovereign grace, people who have been in bondage for 30 years in their case, and then hearing the true gospel of God's grace open their eyes and open their hearts, and I'm just so very, very thankful that God has deigned to use this little church in the enterprise of setting people free. I find it quite remarkable. We find in the New Testament, perhaps the most complete personality profile of any of the apostles, we find the personality profile of Peter. We have a pretty good sense of who Peter is and what Peter's like. Peter, of course, is the one who in the early days was constantly sticking his sandal in his mouth. He was the one who you could count on to say and do the wrong thing. He's even the one who Jesus said before the cock crows, three times you're going to deny me outright. And sure enough, Peter is the one who swore and said, I do not know him to save his own skin. And yet it was as they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee that Jesus showed up on the shore specifically so that he could have the conversation with Peter where after Peter's three denials... Jesus could ask him three times, do you love me? And three times Peter said, you know that I do love you. And Jesus finally reduced him to tears by stepping down to where he was and kept saying, if you love me, feed my sheep. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when Alton Pickett was standing here, I felt that he did a really good job of demonstrating that Peter just like James and just like John, is an apostle to the circumcision. He is not writing to Gentiles, just as James was writing to the dispersion, to the diaspora, so Peter is going to identify that that's the audience he is writing to, and it's really important that you keep that in your head as you read through First and 2 Peter, or else you will become confused. There is a fair bit of theological confusion out there caused by folk who assume that Peter is writing to Gentiles, the Gentile church, especially exclusively, because Peter takes several Old Testament phrases and promises that are made to Israel exclusively, and then he applies them to the audience that he's writing to. And if he is writing to Jews who also believe in Christ then he is giving the proper application of these Old Testament promises that were made to Israel. He's now saying, look, these promises have come true within Israel. That's completely consistent. But if you believe that Peter is writing to a Gentile audience, especially an exclusively Gentile audience, then you're going to wind up saying, look, Peter takes these promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament and he applies them to Gentiles in the New Testament and that makes the Gentile church the new Israel or the true Israel or the spiritual Israel or some other phrase that you don't find anywhere in the Bible. The simple fact of the matter is... Peter picks up promises that were made to Israel and finds their fulfillment in the fact that Christ, the Messiah of Israel, has come to Israel and has produced believers in Israel. And so Peter finds that as the fulfillment of promises God has made. And so as we're reading through the book, you're going to see that Peter makes a lot of those kind of Old Testament references. This morning, we're going to see him using the language of sprinkling, which would mean nothing to your average Gentile, especially someone who has no background in Israelite history or religion, but it's very, very important language to the Hebrew audience. So again, there's all these internal indications that Peter is writing to a Jewish audience, not the least of which is that he begins his letter by saying that he's writing to a Jewish audience. That's the big one right there. So we have to keep that in mind as we're reading through it. Now, as far as when the letters were written, Peter seems to have an understanding of the things that Paul wrote. Sometimes, in fact, he uses phraseology that is identical to what Paul says. And in 2 Peter, he even takes the time to refer to the writings of Paul and says that some of it is quite complicated. So for those of you who find Paul's writing complicated, even Peter said that Paul's writing is complicated. But then he says people twist it and rest it to their own destruction. In other words, you need to read the words for what they say and what they mean and not try to twist it or rest it at all. So he has a familiarity with Paul and Paul's writing. And of course, in the book of Galatia, we find out that Peter was in Galatia. And we find out that Peter and Paul had a relationship wherein Paul had to withstand Peter to his face because Peter was to be blamed. So Peter initially is one of the elders at Jerusalem, Peter, John, and James. Later, he's the bishop at Antioch. And then later after that, according to some tradition, He ends up in Rome, although there's nothing in the Bible that says he ever went to Rome. But that's essential to Catholic hierarchy. They have to get Peter to Rome one way or the other. But there's nothing in the Bible that says he was in Rome. Some folks say that he wrote these letters from Rome. But he says he wrote them from Babylon. Historically, there was still a large Jewish Population in the area of Babylon. And so it makes sense that Peter would go to Babylon and that he would write from Babylon. And it would be very strange as we read through this letter. You're going to see that Peter is very specific with his language. He doesn't write real spiritualized, allegorical kind of stuff. He makes very clear didactic statements. It would be very weird for him to suddenly, when he gets to, Referring to where he's writing from for him to suddenly use a spiritual phrase like, I'm in Babylon, but I really mean Rome. But there are folks out there who, who postulate that he meant Rome when he said Babylon because he was hiding from the authorities and he didn't want them to know where he was, so he said Babylon. But, but I take him at his word because, again, consistently throughout these two letters, he's very, very clear about what he's saying. So probably A.D. 60, right around there, 60, 63, there was a lot of persecution going on in the surrounding area, and Peter, being apostle to the circumcision, and not specifically to the Gentiles, is told us very clearly, demonstrated very clearly in Galatians 2, 7, and 8. Tom's going to look up Galatians 2, 7, and 8, and we're going to see, again, a a very clear and concise statement that's going to make the differentiation between the people that Paul was sent to and the people that Peter was sent to. You got it there? Stand up and read it. Uh, Verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So do you see the differentiation? It's very clear. It's very obvious. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Peter's primary ministry was to the circumcised. Now that makes sense if you think about it because historically it is Peter who stood up on the day of Pentecost and preached to a Jewish audience. Pentecost, don't forget, was one of the three feasts that every year all of the Jews who could travel were required by the law to come to Jerusalem to keep the feast. So there was a great gathering at Jerusalem when the spirit fell, and it was Peter who stood up and spoke to that amassed crowd. That day, 3,000 people were saved, which means there was an excess of 3,000 people there. I've spoken to some large crowds, but I've never spoken to an excess of 3,000 people. And yet Peter was bold enough to stand up on that day and declare not only Jesus Christ, but declare the guilt of the Jews that killed the Prince of Life. That's very, very bold. He said that at risk of his own life. So you see an arc in Peter's life where he started out always saying and doing the wrong thing, And then he even denied the Lord, and then he was restored by the Lord, and the Lord told him, feed my sheep. And sure enough, as soon as Pentecost came around, it was Peter, of all people, who stood up and spoke to Jews, and 3,000 were saved. Now, it makes sense that those who were there at Pentecost, who heard Peter preach, who were converted that day, would naturally think of him as their apostle. He's the one who brought them into the faith. So we're going to see that. Let me tell you one more controversy. There are folk who say now, now in modern scholarship, I should put rabbit ears around scholarship right there. Scholarship. Who say that uh, Peter was probably not written by the apostle Peter, that it was probably a pseudonym that somebody used when they wrote these books, 1 and 2 Peter, And one of the chief evidences that they use is they say, you know, Peter is said to be a fisherman, and even the Jews in Jerusalem, the leaders in Jerusalem, call him out and say that he is unlearned. And so if that is true, they make the leap to he's probably illiterate, and if he's illiterate, then how is it that suddenly he writes these two letters that are written in a very polished, formal Greek. And he uses all this wonderful language. How did he go from unlearned fishermen to what we find in First and 2 Peter? And so people use that as evidence that Peter was not written by the apostle Peter, but by some other person, probably 130, 140 AD, and then during the time of persecution that Pliny wrote about and stuff. And so that's probably what inspired these letters. And in order to give the letters credibility, they wrote Peter's name on it. Well, first off, I really appreciate people 2,000 years after the fact thinking that they know more about it than the people who were actually there because the people who were actually there from very early in the church's history all accepted 1 and 2 Peter as being straight from Peter. Now, it's possible that Peter used an amanuensis. It's possible that Sylvanus wrote it for him. It's possible that Mark wrote it for him. Either one of them would have been able to write this kind of Greek. We know that Sylvanus took the letters from Peter to the churches that he was sending them to, But then, if you think about it, the reason that I brought up Pentecost and Peter standing up at Pentecost, if you go back to the book of Acts and you read what he said at Pentecost, if you read the record that Luke, a physician, wrote of Peter's speech, Peter's speech isn't at all ignorant or halting or full of fisherman stupidity. It's not the language of an unlearned fellow. So what I conclude is that when the leaders in Jerusalem said that he was unlearned, what they meant was, we didn't teach him. He's not learned in the school of the Jews. But there's nothing in there that says he was illiterate or that he was ignorant. And if you look at, again, the speeches that you find in the book of Acts, we're going to look at a couple of little sections of them this morning, you find a man who is genuinely brilliant in his theology and in his choice of words and the words that he uses to communicate. You don't get any clue from Luke that Peter was incapable. That when Peter was standing up on the day of Pentecost, the other apostles grabbed him and went, no, not you, no. We'll say something. Thomas, get up there. So I say the internal evidence all points to the fact that this book was, in fact, written by the apostle Peter. The internal evidence, again, is things like he takes authority over all the elders of the other churches and tells the elders of the other churches what to do and how to think and how to be and don't lord it over the flock of God. He speaks to them like he has the authority to tell them as under shepherds what to be like. Plus, if you look at history, the early history of the church, you have folks like Polycarp and Arrhenius and Clement of Rome all of whom write about these letters and ascribe it to Peter. Those are people who were right there within that first generation and second generation post the apostolic generation. So these are people who are much, much closer to the actual facts than we are. But again, I love it when people 2,000 years after the fact decide that they know more than Polycarp or Arrhenius or anything else because they have found some evidence that they think makes the book of Peter questionable. But it really wasn't questioned by the church at all, at all, right up until the time of the German higher critics and the beginning of the tearing apart of the New Testament. So I say we're going to take this at face value, First and Second Peter. The evidence is all that it was written by Peter And you're going to see that his theology is a very high and grand theology. He understands the sovereignty of God, the election of God. In fact, he launches right in with language of God's sovereignty in election, God's foreknowledge. And his language becomes very, very Pauline, which I'm happy for because that's where I'm most comfortable. I'm happy to be back in the theology of God's sovereignty and salvation by grace alone. That's all Peter. I know I said we're going to start first Peter this morning, so let's start in Acts 2. Turn to Acts 2 real quickly. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. Chapter 2 verse 1 of the book of Acts and when the day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed, and they marveled, saying, Why are not all these that are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Here's the list, verse 9. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes to the Jewish religion, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others were mocking, saying they're full of sweet wine, but Peter taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all of you who live in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you, and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. What I want you to get out of that is Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, all heard in their own own language what does this tell you that tells you that these were all people who were part of the scattering part of the diaspora they were living in all these surrounding areas and coming into jerusalem they were hearing in all their own languages their own tongues from all the places where they were living and they were listening to peter as he was preaching go to first peter now because peter is going to identify his audience the audience that he is writing to and he's going to identify them as the diaspora, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Do you see that list? These are the same folks who were at Pentecost. At Pentecost, he spoke to them. The Spirit fell on them. 3,000 of them were converted. Of course, they'd be looking to Peter as being their apostle. He's the one who was with Jesus. He's the one that was taught by Jesus and converted by Jesus and brought back to the faith by Jesus. He's the one that was preaching Jesus to them and brought them to the faith. So, of course, they would have a great affection for him and him for them. And so those are the people that he's writing to. Now these districts that are named to these elect resident aliens scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. The five areas that are listed in that verse are Roman provinces right there in Asia Minor around Jerusalem. All areas that are close enough that people could get to Jerusalem from there. And those are the people that he was writing to and he sent Silvanus to those areas with the letter that he wrote and with each new area that he'd get to they would copy his letter and he'd move to the next church and they'd make copies and that's why there were so many copies in the early days of First and 2 Peter because they saw them as validly right from Peter. Again, internal evidence that we're talking about an apostle here. So, Peter identifies himself in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To whom? To those who reside as aliens, scattered, that's the word diaspora, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are eclectus. It's the same word that Paul uses, elect, to those that are chosen. So now he's narrowed down the group again. He's not just writing to people at random in each of these Roman provinces. He's writing to the elect chosen of God in each of these provinces. He's writing to Jewish believers in each of these provinces, and he's going to use language that makes it very obvious including that he's going to tell them, watch your behavior among the Gentiles. So it's very clear that he's not writing to the Gentiles. He's warning them to watch their behavior while they're scattered in all these areas among the Gentiles. He has no problem with the idea that God chooses people. Why would he feel that? Because he's one of the 12 who Jesus said... You didn't choose me, I chose you, and one of you is a devil. Jesus even picked the one who would betray him and said he was a son of perdition from the beginning. So Peter got a good lesson during those three and a half years that he walked and talked with Jesus, he got a good lesson in election. He understood who it was that chose him, he and his brother were both apostles How did they become apostles? Because they were working on their nets when Jesus walked up and said, follow me. And we read straightway, they put down their nets and went with him. That's an effectual call. When Jesus can walk up and say, you know what you're doing right now? Don't do that anymore. Come with me. And they go, all right, I'm coming with you now that's an effectual call that's election that's being chosen and jesus was very clear in telling them that they did not choose him that he chose them so of course peter would start with if you believe in christ you're eclectos, you're chosen you're elected of god and that's who i'm writing to but not content with that he goes deeper into his theology He's barely had time to say, hi, it's me, Peter, and he's going to yank out the word foreknowledge to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Now, we'll look at the rest of that verse in a moment, but there is a theology out there that says that we're to understand that concept of foreknowledge as God knowing things about people when Paul writes in Romans 8, that whom he did foreknow, those are the ones he predestined, they will say, well, what that means is that God knew things about people. And because he knew things about them, he knew which ones would choose him. And because they were going to choose him, he chose them in return. Because he knows things about people. He knows everything. So he knows things about people. But what you will notice is that both in Paul's writing and in Peter's writing, neither of them use the word within the context of God knowing things about people. What is it that God foreknows? The people. He knows the people. He doesn't foreknow stuff about the people. He knows the people. Now, the word that Peter is using... Has the P-R-O prefix, which means before, and then knowledge. Prognosis. If you go to your doctor and you uh, find out you're sick and you say to him, Doc, what's the prognosis? Congratulations, you're speaking Greek. The word came right to us from the Greek language. Knowing in advance what's going to happen, or having knowledge in advance. Paul's going to use this word. In fact, let's take a look at a couple of things. Turn to Acts 2 again. I hope you kept your finger in Acts. Turn to Acts 2 for just a moment. Because for those folks who say that God knows stuff about people, we also read that God foreknew Jesus, that God foreknew his son. Does that mean he knew stuff about him or did he foreknow him? I keep arguing that the way Paul uses the language, the way Peter uses the language, and now the way Luke uses the language is that God foreknows people. He has intimate relationship with people in advance. How in advance? Before you ever got here. He knew you and loved you before the foundation of the world because he knew what he was going to do, and he knew you were going to be here, and he knew that he loved you and would choose you before you were ever born. Let's take a look at some of the language that Peter uses of the foreknowledge of God. Acts 2.23, that's where I'm trying to get. Actually, let's start at Acts 2.22, Peter continuing his sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death so peter is perfectly comfortable with the idea that god has predetermined and has foreknowledge of his son because he's already said through all the prophets what it was his son was going to do that his son was going to come he was going to be killed he was going to die he was going to raise again He was going to ascend on high. He was going to have a name above every name. The prophets all predicted that stuff, which is why Jesus, when he was walking on the Emmaus road with the two apostles, when he said, "Uh, what things are you discussing? They said to him, what are you, not from around here? Don't you know? This is all anybody's ever talking about. And he, as he walked with them, starting at the books of Moses, preached to them everything in the Old Testament that pertained to him. And he demonstrated how the Christ had to suffer and that he would die and that he would raise again so that they would understand that it was in the scripture that that's what Christ would do. If it's in the scripture that that's what Christ would do, that means that God had foreknowledge of what it was Christ was going to do, and what Christ was assigned to do while he was on the planet. God foreknew it. And part of God's foreknowledge was that he predetermined the plan that included wicked men killing him. Because that's exactly what the prophet said was going to happen. So do you understand the wisdom of Peter? That's what I'm trying to demonstrate here. Peter doesn't seem ignorant at all. Peter seems to understand that it is the foreknowledge and the predetermination of God that led to Christ. Okay, so now would we be willing to argue that God knew things about Christ? Or would we have to argue that God (laughs) Knew Christ. He had an intimate knowledge of him, what he was going to accomplish on the planet, that he knew all that ahead of time. Well, that's this word, the the prognosco. Paul is arguing, Peter is arguing, Luke is arguing. That God has foreknowledge not of the things that people are going to decide or the things that people are going to do or the activities of people, but that he knows the people. He knows what you're like. He knows intimately what your personality is, what your desires are, what your lusts are, and what your faith is. That's why he has to plant faith in you in order to draw you to himself. He does all that. Why? Because he knew you before the foundation of the world, and he chose you to be brought to him after the ends of all things, through all of eternity. From eternity past, he chose you. Into eternity future, he's going to glorify you. Why? Because he knows you. Because he knows you in advance, he has intimate knowledge of you. That's the way the word is being used. Does that make sense? Let me show you something else, as long as we're talking about that, this predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter continues, not only does he call the Jews evil men for nailing Jesus to the cross, even though it was predetermined by God that these evil men would do that, in verse 24 he says, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held by its power, for David says of him, now he shows that the prophets in advance spoke of who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow thy holy one to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. Then Peter argues very logically brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. So he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses so there's Peter even appealing to the Old Testament scripture and to David their great king to say see God told you all this in advance God prophesied all of this in advance why because he knew it in advance he has the prognosis He knows what the end result of it is going to be. Turn to um, chapter 4. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts, verse 27. For truly in this city, in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint. There were gathered together both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever they wanted. That's not what it says. (laughs) To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So are you getting some sense of Peter's theology? Are you getting some sense of how Peter sees the relationship? between the diaspora, the scattered believers, and God's absolute authority to choose them, to foreknow everything about them, to have an intimate relationship with them in advance, and then to work out his own will according to his own good pleasure and his own predestinary will. That's the way Peter sees this stuff playing out. So again, his theology is very consistent with the Pauline theology. All right, back to 1 Peter. We're going to make a little progress in 1 Peter, I promise. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying, that's the hagiosmos, that same word that's, translated sanctification that has hagios holy as its root the one who separates the one who takes us out of the world for his own exclusive use the one who is in that process uses the spirit the sanctifying work of the spirit why so that you may obey jesus christ look there's the trinity all three members of the Trinity are involved in the salvation of any person. Because it's God who did the foreknowing. It's God who did the predetermining. It is the Holy Spirit who is the intermediary agency through which God enters those individuals producing repentance and faith in them. Which brings them to obedience to the doctrine and the belief in the faith of Jesus Christ. It takes all three. The death of Christ. It takes the sacrificial work of Christ. It takes the inner working and the born again experience that comes by the spirit. And all of that is a result of God the father choosing, deciding, and determining in advance that that's what's going to happen. So the Trinity is intimately involved in the salvation of human beings. I like to say. I like to say, so I'm going to say it again, because I like to say it. When I get done saying it, I'll feel better. I like saying it. We're, We're such sinful human beings. That's not the part I like saying, though I do. We are just such sinful, depraved human beings that we actually believe that some part of the salvation experience must have something to do with us. It has to be about us. There's something I did. There's some reason that God chose me. There had to be some reason that God in his infinite foreknowledge said, Oh, it just wouldn't be heaven without Todd. (laughs) And so I I gotta get Todd. Whoever else I get, I've got to at least get Todd. But then Todd, if he's honest with himself at all, will look at himself and say, I don't deserve to be saved. How can God save a wretch like me? Even just look at what I've done. Look at how I act. Look at how I think. I'm clearly a, a sinful, corrupt human. Am I overstating that? Like a dog to his vomit. Yeah. Like a dog to his vomit. That those were his words. I didn't say that. So there's a problem here. There's a difference between the foreknowledge of God in the Spirit and in Christ. And Todd, who has this sense of, I must have done something, but I also know I'm not good enough to be saved. So he has this whole cognitive dissonance happening in his head. I, I hope I'm good enough. I think I've done enough good. I seem to have enough faith. I hope I've revved it up enough. And yet I know I'm not good enough. He's, he's got this internal dialogue in himself where he's just not confident. Okay, but God knows Todd saved because it's God who has the foreknowledge, who has the prognosis, who has the predetermination, and the everlasting love since before the foundation of the world to choose and elect Todd. So God knows Todd saved. Jesus went to the cross to die for those particular people that God chose before the foundation of the world. Jesus paid the sufficient sacrifice, the sufficient price. And when he paid the sufficient price, he went to heaven so that he could intercede at the right hand of God for those people everlastingly. Therefore, Jesus knows Todd is saved. And the Holy Spirit of God came from God to Todd because the sacrifice of Christ is applied to Todd Todd now needs to be purified from within and faith needs to be produced in him. And so the Holy Spirit of God comes into Todd, occupies Todd, is the governor on Todd's behavior, brings him to the knowledge of God's word and brings him to obedience in Christ. So the Spirit of God knows Todd's saved. God, Jesus and the Spirit know Todd's saved. The only one who's fuzzy on the topic is Todd. (laughs) Todd needs to get over himself. Because that's where we find genuine confidence. That's where we find genuine peace when we stop gazing at our navels and wondering whether we're good enough or right enough or done enough good things, I can save you the trouble. You're not good enough and you haven't done enough good things and there's nothing within you that is so good or so right or so lovely that God is going to look at you and say, well, I've got to have you because of you. That's never going to happen. Instead, you will find peace in all of this, in all of your troubles and in all of your cognitive dissonance, you're only going to find peace if you recognize that God is the actor. Christ is the actor. The Holy Spirit is the actor. You're the one acted upon. You are passive in this. Now, the best part of this whole scenario, the best part of why I went through all of that outside of I enjoyed saying it, the only reason that I went through that is to say to you, That since you are passive, since you are the recipient in all this, since God didn't choose you based on what you did or what you're like or who you are, since he chose you as a trophy of his grace, since you didn't do anything to get yourself into the relationship, you can't do anything to get yourself out of the relationship. And that's Really good news. If you're anything like me or Todd, if you're anything like us, then you want to know that the relationship was begun by God, was completely satisfied, completely paid for. The qualifications are all completely paid up in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And the sure guarantee that God accepted that is that we have the Holy Spirit of God. So since God is for you, Christ is for you, and the Holy Spirit is for you, what can you do that can get you out of that relationship? You can't, because you didn't start the relationship. And that is basic Pauline, Petrine theology, the theology of God's foreknowledge, God's election, God's choosing, and God's grace. Every time you hear me say the word grace, that's what I mean. I mean, God brought you into relationship with him. God doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't change his mind. And so, therefore, you can't change the relationship. You can't break the relationship. You can't be bad enough for God to give up on you, which is really, really good news because Thaddeus is trying. So... (laughs) (laughs) and he agreed okay so Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered you are the chosen you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit so that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood Okay, now to the Jewish audience, that language of the sprinkling with Christ's blood doesn't resonate. In fact, to a Gentile audience, the idea of being sprinkled with blood is kind of, ooh. Yeah, sprinkled with ew, smelly blood. Turn back to the book of Exodus for a moment. Go to Exodus 24. And we're going to show you where that concept comes from because actually it's very, very important. It would be easy to read past Peter saying that, but Peter is actually using language that is very specific to the Old Testament and very specific to the Sinaitic Covenant. He is saying, you were, you Jews you scattered Diaspora Jews, you were under the covenant with Moses, but now you are under a different covenant that requires the sprinkling of blood because the first covenant required the sprinkling of blood, so you are now sprinkled with better blood. Exodus 24, I'm going to start at verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord And all the ordinances and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. This was an important part of making something hagiasmas, making something holy. The way that you would separate an object for God's exclusive use was that you would sprinkle sacrificial blood on it. So that's what he did. They sacrificed a burnt offering and he sprinkled the blood of that offering on the altar that he had made. But then, verse 7 then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So there was a blood covenant being formed at Sinai, and Moses sprinkled blood on the people, making them separate people, making them exclusively God's property. So then you look at the book of Peter Peter writing to an audience that would be familiar with this all of whom are under the Mosaic covenant and he uses the language of Christ and being sprinkled with his blood. That's a huge transition because they consider themselves to be under the law of Moses under the covenant of Moses under the sprinkling of the blood of Moses. And Peter says You've been sprinkled with different blood, new blood. Turn to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Turn quickly. Go to Hebrews 12, because the author of the book of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, uses this same language and demonstrates that the people of the new covenant have been sprinkled with the new blood, the better blood, the higher blood, the blood of Christ himself, not the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sin. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So here's a new blood, the blood of Jesus being sacrificed for the new covenant. The new covenant is established in the blood of Christ and so Peter picks up that language and says, you have not only been chosen, you're not only elect by the foreknowledge of God and by the sanctifying, the hagiosmos work of the spirit, but you also obey Jesus Christ and you are sprinkled with his blood, you are under his covenant. You're no longer under the old covenant, under the Sinai covenant. You are now under the covenant, the new covenant of Christ because Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. So may grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Look, if God has done all that for you, if God chose you since before the foundation of the world, if God sent his son to die in your place so that he didn't have to pour out his wrath on you, if God sent his spirit, the spirit that hovered above the deep in the creation of the whole world, if that spirit is now inhabiting you, acting as a governor on your behavior and bringing you into conformity with Christ, if that is all happening for you, then I think I can confidently say that grace and peace is yours. Because God is no longer mad at you. No matter what Todd has done, no matter what you think, man, I hope God didn't see that. He did. God saw it, and his son mediated for you. And because he chose to love you since before the foundation of the world, rather than pronounce judgment on you, he pronounces grace. And peace on you. We have grace with God. We don't deserve the least thing that God is doing for us. And we have irene. I've defined that word so many times as the cessation of againstness. In other words, you and God were constantly at odds. And you couldn't do anything about it. God's judgment was against you deservedly. And since you couldn't do anything about it. God did everything necessary so that his wrath was satisfied in the death of his son. He appeased himself. He propitiated himself so that he wouldn't pour out his judgment on you and therefore you and God are at peace. There is a ceasing of the againstness that always existed between you and God before and now you're at peace. And if you're at peace with God... I don't care who else wants to pick a fight with you. I don't care who else doesn't agree or who else doesn't think you're anything great. The truth of the matter is, God chose you before the foundation of the world. He loved you since forever. That's Jeremiah 31.3, I've loved you with an everlasting love, and therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. That's the reason God draws and calls people, because of his everlasting love. He loved you enough to send his son to die for you. He loved you enough to put his spirit inside you. There is no way that you cannot have grace and peace as a result of that. And so Peter, just like Paul, uses that phrase, yanks out the phrase again, grace and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've got peace with him, you're at peace. You can lay your head down tonight and go to sleep knowing that in the courts of heaven, you're okay. And then you can stop all the cognitive dissonance. Just get your head off you Get your thoughts off you. Look to him. Run to him. And the more you look at him, the more grace and peace comes. Make sense? Yes. yes not really. I mean, It makes sense, but it sounds too good to be true is what I think of a lot. It does. And that's why it's grace. Yeah. Because it is too good to be true. Because I know me. I certainly don't deserve that. I couldn't deserve that that's why it's grace. So. All right, so that's your introduction to 1 Peter. We didn't get anywhere near as far as I was hoping we'd get, but come back next week and we'll keep going. Shauna, come back next week. And we'll <laughs> Maria, next week, and we'll keep going. That's why the internet exists. Any questions about that so far? Kind of got it? All right, good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Maria, say goodbye to yourself. (laughs) Goodbye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.